It's been six years of podcasting, and without our sponsors, we wouldn't be able to bring these podcasts to you. So I want to thank today's sponsors. And first off, we have the Pretentious Pickle Company of 190 Water Street in Plymouth. Uh, If you haven't had a chance to get down there, uh, go down and check out what they make. They have everything pickled you can imagine from uh, pickled beets to carrots to mushrooms to onions to Brussels sprouts and cauliflower. They even have pickled um, uh, or pickled flavor cotton candy, I should say. They make it fresh there every day, and you can go in there and check out what they have to offer. And if you're not in the Plymouth area, you can go to pretentiouspickle.com and check out what they have to offer there as well, and they will ship it out to you. Their stuff is delicious. You should check it out. And uh, they are big fans of ours, and we are big fans of theirs. So thank you to the Pretentious Pickle Company for sponsoring today's episode. And our second sponsor today is Moonrise Cinemas. Moonrise Cinemas is a new drive-in in Plymouth. Uh, right on the Plymouth-Kingston line. They're located at 428 Court Street in Plymouth, Mass. And they offer a great selection of movies. You can go. It's very family-friendly. I went and checked out The Goonies there. They've had Marvel movies, a wide variety of stuff. And they're really starting to expand. They have had uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. This coming year, they're doing music on thursday nights on wednesdays are going to be 420 friendly events so make sure you check out what they have to offer uh, moonrisecinemas.com it's a great venue they have a beer garden they have uh their own food their food's phenomenal and they're bringing back their french toast which i'm very excited about uh, so make sure you check out what they have to offer, moonrisecinemas.com. And if you use in code INEBRIART when purchasing tickets, you'll get 10% off. So make sure you go to moonrisecinemas.com to get your tickets for movies, concerts, and more. And use code INEBRIART for 10% off on your purchase. And now let's jump right into the podcast. Welcome back, Inebriate. This is Andy of the Inebriate Podcast, as always. And, um, you know, I always like to give some kind of resume for what people have done. And uh, I realized today's guest, if I did that, it would take up the entire show. Um, (laughs) He's a regular in Christopher Guest movies. He's been on Star Trek Lower Deck. He co-wrote, produced, starred in uh, Mascots and Netflix, Mad About You, Family Tree, Middleman, Independence. I mean, it goes on and on. Uh, Jim Piddick, welcome to the show, man. Hey, how are you? Not bad. Um, So I got to say, you're like one of those actors who's in everything. I wasn't familiar with your name, but I I was a huge Mad About You fan, and you had a recurring role on that. Um, Love Christopher Guest movies this is weirdly kind of intimidating. Like I, I rarely have someone with such a, a list of things that I, I'm interested in what they do, but you know, what was your first kind of foray into acting that like really kind of caught where you well, caught the bug? Well, first of all, I'm far from intimidating. <laughs> um, <laughs> and second of all, what first got me into, well, 
I actually wanted to be a professional soccer player, uh, footballer. But I had one thing uh, when I was growing up, but there was one, uh, I had one thing against me, and that was I was um, not fucking good enough. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was far from good enough. Um, I, I was good enough to captain my school team and uh, play in the second uh, 11 at university, and that was about the height of my uh, soccer. So uh, in my mid-teens, I kind of was self-aware enough to realize that this wasn't going to work out for me. Uh, and I'd also started to figure out that probably it was a fairly short-term career um, and I'd be done uh, within a few years. So I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I kind of vaguely thought about being a journalist. Um, uh, and then I was, I think I was 15 when I was sort of bored at school and the, the annual school play came up and I was actually a year too young to audition, but I somehow managed to wangle an audition for it. And, and even more surprisingly, I got cast. And I did that play, uh, which was Jean-Anouis' Ring Around the Moon. Um, and I remember standing in the wings before my first entrance and the first ever performance and being simultaneously um, coursing, adrenaline coursing through my veins. So I was quite, you know, high on that. And simultaneously, I was more terrified than I'd ever been in my life because I was a fairly introverted child. Mm-hmm. Um, and... and at that moment, I also knew, uh, I just knew that I was going to do this for the rest of my life. It was a weird moment. And and, um, and I did. <laughs> that, that's a simple, and there we yeah. go. Thank you very much. It's been lovely. <laughs> All right, thanks uh, for being talking. on. I'll talk to you later. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was a, a weird thing. Um, I mean, what's what's odd about that is, and I think, I, I'm not sure if I talk about this in the book. I, I can't remember everything that's in it. But I do remember, I, I, I did a lot of stage in the first seven or eight years of my career, uh, a lot of it on Broadway, as a matter of fact. And then I um, I got to a point where I then moved into film and TV and I didn't do theatre for a very long time. And I went back, I think it was in 2012, I did a um, two weeks in LA and a week in, in on Broadway in a, in a show called An Evening Without Monty Python. It was directed by Eric Idle. And it was five of us, uh, Jane Leaves, Alan Tudyk, uh, Rick Holmes, uh, Jeff Davis and myself, and we basically did all the great Python sketches. Yeah, and um, it was great. I was I literally so in my wheelhouse. I was having so much fun, and we it was exhausting because I think we were all in multiple sketches, and we had seven. I had seventeen costume and changes and wigs and this and that. So it was more tiring backstage than on stage. Um, but I do remember standing in the wings for that in New York on Broadway, where I had performed solidly for almost three years, probably 25 years before, and uh, very happily. And I remember thinking, this is eight o'clock. I am feeling terrified, as usual, before uh, a show that I'm not, you know, haven't run for a long time and not comfortable in. And I feel sick. And I would actually rather be in a restaurant having a glass of wine right now and a nice meal rather than doing this. And I said, what's to stop me just walking out of the theater right now and doing that? Uh, Obviously I didn't, I went and did the show and I loved doing the show and the show was very successful and it was fun to do. But I I remember feeling a different sense of, uh, it was mostly just terror. There was not a high from the adrenaline. Hmm. And I I was puzzled by that. And I knew that, um, I knew that Sir Laurence Olivier, obviously one of the greatest actors of all time, 
had a similar thing in his middle age. He became terrified with stage fright, paralyzed, and wasn't sure if he could remember his lines, wasn't sure if, how he could control what he was doing on stage. And I think I talked to a doctor about this just because, in conversation. It wasn't like I went to a doctor and said, like, I've yeah. got this. I was just talking to someone, and he said, oh, that's completely normal. He said, when you get to a certain age, when you're young, it's adrenaline is the fight or flight thing. So you fight when you're young. Yeah. And when you're older, you, you take flight. Because <laughs> you know you're going to get your ass kicked at some level. Yeah. Um, and so I, I found that a very interesting psychological kind of quandary. I mean, I still would do theatre if the right thing came up and I felt comfortable enough. Um, but, 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 I, but, but I was an interesting kind of turnaround. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Like I did a lot of theater as a kid and played in, you know, concert and jazz band and was as a child was really introverted and always felt more comfortable on stage in front of people than in a one-on-one conversation. I think a lot of it was because I couldn't, you know, when the house lights down, you can't really see the audience. So it's almost like they're not there, but I wonder if that would change over the you can hide behind a character, you know, and that, I was known for years and years as a character. And I st- still am really as a character actor hiding behind different, you know, looks and stuff. And that's fun. I love doing that. But as I got to my mid fifties or uh, yeah, I, I suppose it was about my mid early mid fifties. I started to really enjoy playing myself and I hosted a few things as myself uh, and um a TV documentary type things. And I really enjoyed that and interacting with people. And I became very, I guess it was just a a maturity thing. I became very comfortable being me. I had less interest in being other people. I still like it now and again, but now I kind of, I kind of um, look at a role and see, well, what parts of me are in this character as opposed to let me completely change myself to be this other person. So it's less of an immersive kind of process now and more organically coming from inside who I am. And, and, and I'm much more comfortable with that now. Like, I mean, doing these things, we're talking to you and uh, do, doing these interviews, and I've been doing a lot lately to promote the book. Um, I, I'm very happy doing that. And that, that is a, perfor- a, a, a type of performance, obviously. You know, it's um, you're telling a lot of the same stories again and again and saying all the same things. But, but I, I find that much more in, engaging and enjoyable and I, I, far less terrifying doing stuff like this. Yeah. It, so you said that you would, you would consider doing theater again, but are you looking to get back to, to TV and movies? Or is oh, yeah. No, I, I'm still – I just finished doing a film in November and I'm supposed to do another one quite soon. Um, I, I think the, the way I brought – the reason I brought that up is because – the, the, the book all came about because I did a talk for Screen Actors Guild um, in 2017 in a 200-seat theatre. It was called uh, Inside the Industry, Let's Talk About It. I think it was called that. And they, I was interviewed by a Wall Street Journal entertainment reporter for about 45 minutes to an hour, and then I did a Q&A afterwards. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't prepare anything. I just went out there and told stories, and, and mostly humorous stories, uh, often embarrassing ones about myself, uh, stories of success, stories of failure, Stories of, of the challenges that one faces and in life and, and as an actor and a writer. And, and, and it really kind of seemed to work and, and people liked it and I enjoyed doing it. And I came away thinking, well, maybe I would end my long theatrical hiatus and, and possibly do this as a one-man show that would be kind of fun, just me 
not stand up, but sit down or, you know, or, or wander yeah. around the stage now and again and, and just talking to people and, and doing these stories that, that come quite easily to me and um, would be fun to share. And I started writing a one-man show uh, based on the, the, the stuff I'd talked about that evening uh, and it very quickly became uh, a 10-hour show, which I thought would test the patience, <laughs> test the patience of any theatre audience. It was like Nicholas Nickleby on his own. Um, so I, I then um, thought, I better do this as a book. And I kind of started it very, very peripherally while I was doing other things. And then we hit this thing called COVID. I don't know if you've heard about it. It's this, uh, this virus. I think it's I saw very... something on Twitter. About yeah, it. I mean, it's been on the news here and there. Yeah. Um, uh, so we went into lockdown and um, I just became a writing maniac. And I wrote in five months what would have probably taken me five years to write the book. And also it was a perfect time to look backwards and see, you know, I was in my early 60s, uh, uh, two years ago, and um I always tend to look forwards and never want to look backwards. So I look far forwards or right in front of me. So it was kind of interesting to be forced to, uh, to turn around and sort of see what, what road you've traveled and what I could learn from it and where I could go from here. Um, and if there was anything that was worth sharing. Uh, and so it was, it was perfect timing, perfect timing. And then I ended up finishing the book and then writing a couple of screenplays. I wrote a TV series that I was hired to do. And so it was a very prolific writing period. Uh, and then the book I had to come back to because I then sold it and had to actually rewrite it and get it in shape. Um, so, so that's, that's sort of the org organically how it happened. Yeah. In taking that journey back and thinking about the old stories, were there, were there things that popped up that you hadn't, like thought about in years or kind of forgot about that, like were absolutely the book. Yeah, there were lots of things I'd scribbled down I knew I wanted to talk about Mem memorable things that will stay with you for your whole life. And then there were, as I got into, I mean, I had to structure it, uh, you know, in a in a linear fashion of sort of basically in a traditional memoir type of thing, sort of beginning, and middle, and end. You know, or through my life and career, I really skipped through the childhood stuff, and because it's not that interesting. Whether it was a good story, I'd tell it. But yeah. if it wasn't, if it was no good story. Who cares? You know what my parents did for a living and what my first dog was called and all that. Nobody's interested. Um, uh, I'm not interested. <laughs> and uh, so then it became. I, I kind of got through that fairly quickly and told some funny, hopefully funny stories about my early years. And then um, I got into it. Uh, and then, sorry, what was the question again? I can't yeah. <laughs> was there was there something that kind of the process of writing? shook free like a memory that you had forgotten about oh yeah yeah sorry there we go it's, it's, i've lodged dislodged every other memory but um <laughs> yes yes there were. there were there were things that as i went through the the, the linear kind of step-by-step -step thing i had to go oh god I, i'd completely forgotten that and even now i'm still scribbling down things which is way too late because the book is is locked um of, of i completely forgot that whole thing which i'll have to do somewhere somewhere else um, so yes, there were, were things that, that sort of I was reminded of and, 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 and funny stories and fun events and, and people that, that, that I've encountered. Yeah. In the, the slew of things you've been in, was there one particular character that you would like to go back and, and maybe flesh out or do more with? Well, I'd love to, uh, one of the things I say at the end of the book is that I've done so many different things. I've had such a wide variety of, uh, in my career um, of writing, acting, producing, uh, comedy, 
drama, whatever. But I've never actually been a regular on a TV show over a long period. I've, I've recurred, as you say, Mad About You and other shows. Yeah. And, and that's been fun. But I've never really had a run at living with a character for a number of years. And, and I mean, God, who knows? And maybe I'll get completely bored after a couple of years. But I like that idea. And I like that idea of... Um, of, of doing something that's kind of again close to myself that that, that lives for for, for a, in a long running series whether it be comedy or drama it's not important to me um, so that that would be something I would love to love to still do yeah I, I always love in sitcoms how especially long running ones if you go back and you look at the early seasons the characters are almost caricatures of what they become, you know, because they really spent time flushing them out. And is that what like excites you about that? Yeah. Yeah. You really can inhabit it. Yeah. You can inhabit it and fill it out and and progress it. You know, it can organically change, you know, uh, in in a really good way, unless it's a really cheesy sitcom, in which case they don't want you to, to, to do anything other than the, you know, come in, get your laugh and get out. Um, So I, I like that. Um, and you're right. I mean, the best shows do. The characters kind of get deeper and uh, more uh, complex. Yeah. I, I love that that idea. Um, as a writer, too, I like the idea of living with something uh, over a long period and sort of developing it. So, so that would be kind of an exciting thing to do that I haven't actually done so far. And you're, I mean, you're not well known for, you know, comedic stuff, but is there an interest in doing more drama or sci-fi or anything like that absolutely i mean the weird thing is the last two things i've done once but the one before the pandemic one after have both been supernatural thrillers and very very far from comedy i mean one was the the haunting of blind manor on netflix Mm -hmm. which i played a a a very amiable and kind catholic priest um and, and it was you know completely there wasn't a funny line in it i tried but it wasn't um and then I've just did something where I played the captain of the Queen Mary in the 1930s in a supernatural thriller. Um, and, it, it, you know, I, I, was, I end up killing a lot of people. And I'm, I'm both a hero and a villain. It's a great, lovely, complex role of a man who goes through this arc of being, uh, without giving too much away, um, knowing, knowing where all the bodies are buried and stuff, and then, um, and then ending up being something of a hero. So it was, it was, it was fun. But, again, n- not... I mean, there was there's some ironic lines in it, like in every good drama, there's kind of a good comedy line somewhere. Right. Yeah. I'll usually mine that. Um, but yeah, the, those two last things. In fact, if I look back over the last few years, I've probably done as much drama as comedy. You know, I, I always hear people say that they love to play villains more than the heroes. That's something that you f- rings true to you or. Well, of course, they're more interesting, you know, unless the hero is deeply flawed, then that's fun. But but villains, yeah. That that then just a sort of a beige kind of nice guy is that's kind of boring. Um, yeah. uh, and and I think that the, the the villains, you know, you can there's a complexity there right away because nobody's all villain, right? Uh, unless their name is Donald Trump. Oh God! Just, <laughs> there we go. We've lost half the audience. Um, um, not my audience now. Lost. Uh, <laughs> I've lost one person. Yeah. Um, uh, who's got a red hat on? Uh, no, I mean I think that that's that's that is fun to do, and I think most actors would tell you that. Yeah, I feel like I don't know whether it's just the things I've caught recently or a change in writing in the past few, you know, the last decade or so. But I feel like 
I mean, even in you know huge blockbusters, like if you watch you know the Avengers movies, Thanos wasn't wrong. Like had some points. Like he had motivation. It, like I just remember growing up as a kid in in the nineteen eighties. It was like the villain's a villain. He's going to destroy the world for money. That's it. And no, I feel no. like now they're doing a better job of kind of like fleshing out a real motivation. Yeah, and what what made them the way they are, you know? And I think you can. Again, if you've got kind of a wry sense of humor, you can really have fun with it. I mean, uh, whether you're doing Shakespeare or or Die Hard, you know, I mean, when you think of people like Alan Rickman, who come from that kind of background, you know, that he was great at villains because he was able to do comedy so well. And he had that kind of wry, twisted thing going on. So so I think those are always interesting roles for actors. Yeah. And I got to ask, I didn't know you performed in this, but what was it like performing in, in a Monty Python uh, production? I, I saw years ago, Eric Idle exploits Monty Python. Yes. Uh, yes. I gr- grew up on Monty Python. I mean, was that like a dream come true? Had you worked with them before? Or? Yeah, it was. Um, I, I They were the biggest influence, Monty Python, on my career, for sure. And my comedy, it was opened my eyes when I was a teenager to what comedy could be, both smart and silly. Mm-hmm. And I love that. And so I, about 25 years ago, um, did a film which was probably one of the worst films that's ever been made called Burn Hollywood Burn, an Alan Smithy film. And it was kind of an in-joke, a Hollywood uh, in-joke, because Alan Smithy is the name that a director assumes if they want to take their Um, name off the movie. Right, right, right. If it's not the cut they like or they, you know, hate it, whatever, they they use the name Alan Smithy. And the premise of this script, which was written by Joe Esterhaas, uh, who is not a comic writer, comedic writer, and it showed, um, was, and it was directed by Arthur Hiller, who did Love Story. And everybody was in it. I mean, you can look it up. I mean, it was Sylvester Stallone, you know, Whoopi Goldberg, Jackie Chan, all these people. I mean, it's just absolutely chock full. And, and people playing themselves, too, like yeah. Harvey Weinstein and other people. Um, although I'm not sure I want to post a <laughs> film with Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. What's next? And then I did a show with OJ Simpson. And, and then I was in Home Alone 2 with Donald Trump. <laughs> with Donald Trump, yes. And that thing I did with Jeffrey Dahmer, it was a cooking show. I don't know. <laughs> that was a mistake. I should never have done it. Um, so, so I was in this film cast and it was, uh, I had 17 short scenes with uh, Eric Idle, um, Naomi Campbell, the supermodel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the three of us had all these scenes together, and I was very excited uh, to meet to meet Eric um, because he was an idol, and and um, it was bizarre because we sort of hit it off at first sight. Um, we just had exactly the same sort of sensibility in terms of sense of humor. We both saw the absurdity of what we were doing. Yeah, uh, doing scenes in a it was all our scenes were set in a mental home where Eric had had a breakdown and Naomi and I were his carers in the, in the, in this psychiatric ward and this insane film that nobody could make funny directed by Arthur Hiller, who did love story and him, me and, and Naomi Campbell. And, and, and we just kind of, at one point I remember just, he caught my eye and we both just started laughing for no reason other than that. We both knew how absurd this was. And we became really good friends on that and have remained incredibly close ever since, I'm happy to say. And he writes the foreword for the book. In fact, it's called A Foreplay by Eric Idle. <laughs> um, and, and it's a lovely foreword. Uh, and, and, and I spend, he's probably my closest friend in America. Um, and we spend summers often together in Provence and stuff. 
So yes, it was it was fantastic, and and I've worked with Eric many many times since uh, in all sorts of different things, and and this was sort of a, a part one of those many things. I mean, another one was a, a show called What About Dick, which had started. Eric had written this film um, called R- The Remains of the Piano, which was kind of a parody of all the Merchant Ivory films, and mm-hmm. it was it was uh, I think optioned by Miramax, and it, it never happened, and. He got frustrated and said, I'm going to turn this into a movie for, for, for the stage, uh, a, a radio play, uh, okay. a motion picture for radio. Uh, and, um, and he did. And he, old school radio with you know, sound effects on stage, you know, old fashioned uh, sand pits and people banging things and making all, doing all the sound effects. And he got this extraordinary cast together and renamed it What About Dick? And he got this incredible cast together, which was... Uh, Billy Connolly, Russell Brand, Tim Curry, Eric Idle, uh, Eddie Izzard, Jane Leaves, myself, Tracy Ullman, Sophie, Sophie Winkleman, <laughs> and Emily Mortimer. Emily Mortimer was in the first one, and then yeah. she couldn't do the second, so Sophie took her role when we did the show again uh, five years later. And it was this incredible show uh, on stage that was sold out within seconds, and it was you know, once in a lifetime event, because in fact, it became a twice in a lifetime event because we did do it again and we filmed it. And it was actually, you can watch it on Netflix. It's uh, What About Dick, uh, the second version. And um, it was just incredible being on the stage with all those minutes, like every great British comic actor or comedian uh, that I can think of almost. Um, And when would you ever get that chance? So that was kind of a, a wonderful experience. Do you, something that I I end up talking a lot about because I'm in a bit of it is the kind of imposter syndrome where like, oh, I don't belong here. And, you know, um, did you ever experience that? Do you still struggle with that? No, no. I I mean, uh, I I knew that, that every, we made some, we cut some commercials with each of our people, uh, each of us doing a, a little catchphrase. And I said during the course of my interview, I've, I've been a disguise actor my whole life, so no one knows who the fuck I am. And yeah. they titled the advert, Who the Fuck is Jim Piddock? And I love, <laughs> I love that. I love That's that. Uh, and um, I did. Uh, there was moments on stage where I look around and go, I can't believe I'm actually up here with these people. And I, in the first version, I had almost more than anybody to do. I was playing so many characters, running from microphone to microphone to microphone. Uh, but I, I, I knew that I'd earned the right to be there. Um, yeah. I was certainly getting, you know, as many laughs as everybody else and, and doing as many silly voices as everybody else and, and getting as many double entendres in as everybody else. Um, I think Billy Connolly, if I'm to pick out one person who would stole the show, was the band who stole the show. Um, but Billy can do that within any situation. Um, but, but no, I, d- I didn't feel like an imposter. I just felt like people are going to go in the audience are going, well, I know him, 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 her, him, 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 her. But who the hell, who the fuck is that? Yeah. Uh, and, and, but, you know, that's fine. That's fine. But, I mean, I did a, I did something recently I, I, on Twitter. I posted something connected with the football club I'm connected to. And, and it got tons of reactions of people angry and supporters of this other team. And, and it made a newspaper column in Liverpool and said, uh, my tweet was quoted and people were to, and then there was the comment section afterwards and I loved it. I said to the social media person who's working in the book, uh, the, the, a lot of the comments said, who the fuck is Jim Piddock? Which is, again, <laughs> my, my, my favorite lines. And I, I, I said, uh, I love that because 
And I think I may even reply to the comment, you don't know who I am, but you do now. <laughs> you didn't know who I am, yeah. but you do now. You knew, you know who the fuck I am now. So, yeah. you know, it's like, I, I don't mind that. I kind of like that. So you mentioned doing a lot of funny voices. And I, as I was kind of strolling through your uh, IMDb page, you've done a ton of voice acting that I had no idea that you did. I have. I know a lot of people don't. Um, and I never, I've never done that Comic-Con thing, which is weird. Um, I, no one's ever asked me. I'm not sure why. Um, uh, I, I guess I've been quite busy and I don't, I don't know how I'd react to that. But I, or, I mean, signing things and getting paid to sign it. I find a bit, a bit odd. I'm not sure I would. That sits too well with me. Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose the best known in terms of uh, voiceover stuff would be that I played a character called Major Zero in a game called Metal Gear Solid 3, mm -hmm. which has made billions and billions of dollars and is hugely popular. And people, you know, send me letters, you know, Major Zero, tell me this and tell me that. And I've never played the game. I've never watched it. So someone asked me recently, you know, could you sign this and you put a couple of your lines on here, you know, um, and I had to go and look up, uh, you know, what my lines were because I couldn't remember. <laughs> Some of them were quite good. I mean, I was like, oh, yeah, that was quite good. I, I didn't remember that. Um, so, yeah, that, that's that. And then I, yeah, I've done, yeah. There's a whole chapter about all the voiceover stuff and the weird stories and the sort of fuck-ups that have happened on the voiceover world uh, and the extraordinary things that people uh, – you know, I mean, I got a call from Ethan Cohen out of the blue asking me to to do the director's cut of their uh, Blood Simple and to, to to do the director's commentary as a char fictitious character he'd created. And so I did yeah, this. Cool. And then um, it, it was brilliant, hysterical, lunatic 90-minute monologue that I recorded with him over a couple of days in Santa Monica. And the, the, they love playing games on people, the Coen brothers, and they wanted people to be outraged by the, this alleged film expert who clearly knows nothing about film or this film. Yeah. is just rambling on, explaining stuff like, oh, that's not real. The actors aren't really sweating. That's movie sweat, which is, <laughs> which is drawn from the Palomino horses. And uh, this is, you know, the original cast was supposed to be Fred Astaire and Rosemary Clooney. And we, this scene was actually shot upside down. It's a car driving. So this yeah. is shot upside down, but we had to, to get the effect, we had to shoot it upside down and now it's been reversed. Just nonsense, <laughs> absolute nonsense. And this dog, which is clearly a real dog running yeah. through going, that's an animatronic dog, as, which I'm sure you know, you know. So this goes on and then he gets more and more unhinged and stops talking about the movie entirely and then just utters this endless sense of grievances about the business, show business that she has treated him so badly and how he got into a fist fight with with uh, Nick Nolte and was attacked with a stiletto heel by the writer, Ruth Prawajablava or whatever. And it, it's mental. And I loved it. <laughs> and, and they put this director's cut out with this thing out saying a commentary by Kenneth Loring from forever young films and didn't tell anyone it was, you know, a joke, whatever. Yeah. And I, I, I sort of didn't hear any more about it. And, and, and I'd read things online of people going, this is extraordinary. I mean, and people love people either going, this is outrageous or people saying, uh, who is it? Who did this? It's very funny. And then I ran into Joel and Ethan at a party and they came bounding over and they were so excited. They said, oh my God, you'll never guess. We got a letter from someone who, who bought this DVD and told us we had to sort, sue this guy who's 
obviously bootlegged his voice onto this <laughs> and it's a bootleg he's selling these bootlegs with and it's your director's cut and he's done a commentary it's appalling and the guy's an idiot terrible british accent and, you know, just like, <laughs> and they they just loved it and they said that's exactly the reaction we wanted that's amazing i i, I have a good friend of mine that used to work at uh, plymouth plantation and she's from uh england and there's been multiple times where uh, guests have, you know, written reviews or whatever and complained that her British accent was so fake. Oh. And I love that. It's so funny. Yeah. I, I like if people go, you know, that's, that's not a real British accent. right? Yeah. No, I'm just, I mean, this, I love that. I love that. It's just, yeah. Have you ever lost it for a job and then had trouble getting it back? I, I want to say I heard that recently and I can't remember who it was about that they, that they gave up their accent for, or they trained themselves out of their accent for, for some project and then had trouble like kind of getting it back. Oh, I don't know if I had trouble, but I think when I, I haven't done that many American roles, but I've done a fair number recently. And, and then I think what happens is that if, if it's over a period of time, you do, you, it does influence. And, and, and my English friends will go, God, well, you, you sound American now, you know, or half American. What's this matter with you? Um, so I think that has happened, but, but it, it slides back pretty quickly, pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, so what is coming down the, the pipeline? Are you, are you working on any projects that you want to talk about or, I mean, well, obviously got, the book. <laughs> yeah. The book, uh, which I think is, is, uh, a really fun read. I think so. And it's got some lovely celebrity endorsements. Um, people seem to have responded extraordinarily positive, way more positively than I, than I thought, um, it seems to strike a chord with people both in and outside of show business, uh, which is great. So I think it's relatable and I think it's irreverent and I don't pull any punches. And I think it's rare in the sense that uh, the, the, the one thing that really does make it rare is that it's brutally honest, both with myself, but I don't, I don't um, shy away from naming names. Um, and, and that's uh, shocked a few people and um, delighted most people. And I don't care, you know, it's important to me to call out bad behavior. And I only eviscerate three people in the book, one of whom's dead, so they can't sue me. Um, and the other two are very well known. And um, I don't care. I don't care. They deserve to be eviscerated. And if they want to defend themselves, they can. Um, they certainly can't sue me because everything I said is completely true. Uh, so I've got that coming up. And then uh, let me talk about the film for a second, The Queen Mary. That will be coming out, I think, later this year or early next year. That's That looks like it could be fun. And I have a film that I've written that's supposed to start shooting early summer with Jeremy Irons and Minnie Driver, uh, nice. which uh, is a drama, not comedy at all. I, it's about a, a famous racehorse called Frankel and his trainer, Sir Henry Cecil. It's a wonderful kind of um, redemption story. And um, it's a great sports story and it's a great life story. Uh, and I will probably play a small part in that. Um, and th that's imminently what I've got coming up. Is, is Queen Mary a Netflix release or is that going to be a... Uh, it might be, actually. I know that they were one of the people sniffing around it while we were shooting. But I don't know uh, who, who, where it's being distributed at this point. Um, Distribution post, but... now is so weird. It's... Well, absolutely. It could end up and it could be end up as a theatrical release. It could end up Amazon, Netflix, who knows? Yeah. Um, it, it makes sense to be an Amazon or a Netflix, that type of, you know, that, uh, I was thinking it would be a good Netflix film. Um, 
so those I got coming up, and then you know things always hit you sideways from nowhere. Um, always got at least a dozen irons in the fire at any time. And in fact, while we were talking, I saw I think one of my agents called, so that could be something. Else. <laughs> now, how do you feel about all these streaming? And it seems like the movie going experiences not like it used to be with people's home theaters setups and do you feel it's a good thing do you feel like it's taking away from that kind of special going out to the movies or like um i think it, probably a younger person could answer that better because i'm at the age where i quite like just staying at home and watching uh movies um i know people say oh you have to see this in a movie theater and i go well I, I actually don't um we've all got fairly big screens now and there are i mean yeah, sure there are certain things like dunkirk which are probably a lot better in a movie theater but i i i sort of love I used to, when I did go regularly to, to movie theatres, I'd always go in the afternoon when there was about two people there. Yeah. Because I can't stand, I hate the distractions of people talking and crunching popcorn in my ear and and, and, and stuff. I was crunching sweets and stuff. It drives me crazy. I just want to say, shut the fuck up and watch the movie and um, don't disturb me. Uh, so as you can see, I'm a very tolerant person. Um, <laughs> uh, so so it doesn't worry me. and And I think... I think it's great for the sort of things I'm interested in writing, which are a bit more indie oriented. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's so many avenues now. Um, it's obviously got very crowded and competitive, but, but you know, the, there came a point where it was almost impossible to get a serious film for grown-ups made. And by serious, I don't necessarily mean a drama, a comedy, but a, but a clever adult yeah. film that was, you know, not for morons. Um, it was very difficult to get made uh, because that middle ground didn't exist. It was either very cheap horror films that mm -hmm. were three or four million uh, and, you know, could, could make a lot of money or, or big, huge budget studio movies, sequels and Marvel comics. Um, excuse me. I just belched on, on into your show. That was awful. Um, are we on video by the way as well? Uh, it, we are, but it doesn't actually go out. It's just, oh, it doesn't go out. Okay. Yeah. So no one can see how much better your beard is than mine. <laughs> Thank you. Let Take me care. assure you, dear listener, it is. Um, so yeah, the, 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 I think it's, um, it, it's great. It's great in many ways, you know, and the standard of television and streaming has, has really has risen. I mean, you, I, I think now where you find a tough time finding really good material is actually in a movie theater because they are all the big sequels and comedy releases. I mean, yeah. sequels and, and, and um, comic book um, franchises, which I have no real interest in um, particularly myself personally, but I, I mean, some of them are great and I watch them, and, but it's not, it's not the first, my first go-to kind of thing. I, I, I uh, you mentioned sci-fi earlier and, and fantasy um, I, I think they're great. They're wonderful things, but they just personally aren't on the top of my list because I really like, uh, and especially as I get older, things that reflect the world we live in and the human condition as it is. Not, I don't really care about some fictitious world where you know Armageddon has happened and the you know zombies and all that. There's no interest really to me because it, you're just creating a, a false world that doesn't exist. That, that's not. I don't, it doesn't for me reflect back what life is, um, yeah. but that's just a personal thing. And I get that you can be mythical and can have par parables for life in those films. They just don't, uh, they're not my, as I say, go-to. 
So, so I don't miss going to the movies that much because there's very few things. And most good foreign films now are released, you know, on streaming. Yeah. Or I get the screeners because I have to vote in the Academy and all that. Um, so, so yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't really miss that. And the same with theatre. I mean, Broadway in the West End now is all big, splashy event musicals, which, again, is not of interest to me. I mean, musicals are, are not of interest. So... Yeah, uh, it's, gotta, changed. it's changed. I gotta say, the thing that I really like is that it's it's things that I normally would never be able to find or would never come across or are filtering their way in. And like Squid Games is probably the thing that jumps to my mind most recently. Yeah, that would just have never really come on. It wouldn't be on HBO. It wouldn't be anywhere. And somehow it got onto Netflix, and yeah, you know, people found it there. And it it, it just seems like it gives people more ability to find some really good stuff out that I, I think so. I mean, to be, it, what was interesting to me is I watched loads and loads of screeners this year for the awards and the, my two favorite films, the best drama, the, I thought by the most outstanding drama by a long shot was um, a Swedish film. I believe it's Swedish. <laughs> it's awful now. If I've got my Nordic countries wrong, <laughs> it's called the worst person in the world. And I can't recommend it more highly. I think it's one of the most extraordinary performances I've seen in a long while. And one of the most extraordinary dramas I've seen in a long while. I thought it was stunning and very, very much about the real world we live in. And the, the best comedy I saw was an Italian movie. I mean, I, I, the idea that a foreign film made me laugh out loud far more than an English language film is extraordinary to me, especially as I've always thought as my humour as being very either British or American. Uh, and I thought that there was stuff in that Italian film, which was called The Hand of God, um, which I, I thought was so wonderful and unique. And it was so uplifting and life affirming the whole film in not in a sentimental way whatsoever. It's, uh, it's, it's, but it's some brutally funny stuff in it. That's absolutely hilarious. So I found that interesting that I think, those things will now hopefully find their way onto the Netflixes and the Amazons of this world and will reach a much wider audience than they would have in an art house somewhere. Yeah, that, that sounds I'm gonna have to that sounds like a really cool movie. The Hand of God? The Hand of God. Yeah. It made the me Hand think of, of um I'm only gonna be able to think of half the title because it's someone's name. Edgar, maybe Edgar in the in the pursuit of happiness or Edgar's search for happiness. It's got um Oh my God. And of course now I'm blanking completely. He was in Shaun of the dead British actor. Um, oh, I know who you mean. Think of me. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's a movie. It's, you know, he's kind of like trying to find what makes him happy and it's funny and it's scary and it's like very uplifting, but not in a cheesy way. And yeah, you know, I really like that kind of, you know, complex, you know, don't treat me like an idiot movie. I I like dumb movies too, but you know. Yeah, I mean, it's, dumb movies are great if they're done well. Yeah. A, dumb, a dumb movie is excellent, but but these anyway, these were the those that I thought were by a fair long shot the stand up to stand up movies. Nice. Well, I want to say thank you for coming on the show and talking to us. Was was great. Um, where can our listeners go to get your book? Uh, well, Amazon is the easiest. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's available for, for the ebook is available now to pre-order 
on March the 13th, which is, this will probably be aired after that. So by the yeah. time this airs, so it will be uh, available all formats, which is hard copy, uh, ebook, and audiobook, which I narrated, um, uh, are all available from March 13th. And the book releases uh, March 23rd. So it, it's uh, you can pre-order after March 13th, and you can order order and get it uh, delivered to your doorstep on March 23rd. It will be or if Yours. you happen to know of a place that actually still sells books in real life, you can go. Absolutely. To the <laughs> uh, yeah. I think you can get signed copies. I think we're doing a deal with Chevalier's bookstore, which is the oldest bookstore in LA. Oh. Uh, to, to, I'm doing an event there to, uh, to, to, for the launch of the book and I'll probably sign a whole bunch. So, so that if people want signed copies, they can order it through that, that bookstore. Um, but otherwise all your regular Barnes and Noble, well, everybody, you know, Kobo, but, but but Amazon, you know, I think is my, my go-to. So I mean, I'm sure it's most people's. Yeah, pretty uh, much. Uh, so yeah, it, it, that's the best way. And I don't you know, probably find it in bookstores as well. I don't know, but it's uh, that's you know, the easier way is to click on the button. Yeah, that's why it's so popular. It's just easy. Yeah, okay. yeah. But Jim, thank you so much. Uh, like I said, it was a pleasure uh, having you on. And uh, best of luck with the book. And hopefully, our listeners will go out and get their copy and our listeners will uh, see you guys again next week my pleasure it's lovely talking to you and thanks for checking out the show today listeners uh if you enjoyed the content today you can go over to patreon.com slash to support the show you can join over there for just a few dollars a month and help us provide this fun content that you just checked out you can also email us at anebriart.com with your questions, complaints, and concerns, or you can find us on all social medias at anebriart or at anebriart6 on Instagram. And also don't forget to check out our other shows, Bar Talk Podcast, Old Colony Cast, Anebriart, and all the other shows on the Anebriart Network, which you can find at anebriart.com. So thanks again for listening. <laughs>